Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Wild Hearts, the podcast dedicated to sharing the stories and lessons from the founders and operators changing the world. In this episode, the co-founder of Kiki, Toby Thomas-Smith, shares how they're growing one of the most magnetic communities I've ever seen. We've literally had people run up to me in the street, cry in my arms because they got to see their grandma for the last time before she passed away because they were able to go back and see her not pay rent while they were gone. But it's about people. It's about the connection. It's what you unlock for people in their lives. If we can pull this off, we're going to change how a billion people live and unchain a billion people from their rent. Fundamentally, like you're making people's lives happier. Kiki, in its simplest form, is an invite-only subletting business. After several failed launches in New Zealand, Kiki, then known as Easy Rent, relaunched with a suite of new insights in Sydney and found the winning formula. After putting people before property, they grew rapidly and off the back of a $6 million raise, Kiki have relaunched in New York with the ambitions to change the way that people live. Not only is this episode playful, fun, and hilarious, it's truly packed with insights on early mistakes, strategies for growing community, key design decisions that went into their app, their go-to-market strategy for New York, and loads more. Like me, you'll probably realize that it's probably impossible for Toby not to be his authentic self. And with that, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Dude, let's get stuck in. Let's go for it. So let's start with your upbringing. Mm. You were telling me that your parents are just anti-risk. Mm. How so? Yeah, I was actually talking to mum last night. And she was, I was <laughs> Is it okay if I can speak about this? <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, my mum, um, yeah, like, I was talking to my mum last night and I was like out and about. She's like, be safe, Toby. Like, look after yourself. Like, she's just that kind of woman. She's absolutely lovely. She must but... be getting tortured then with oh, the thought yeah, of what you're doing. Oh, yeah, she freaks out. Yeah, she's like, just send me your location. Like, I'm in New York. Like, what, what are you meant to do? Um, but yeah, no, she's very... She's also a primary school teacher, you know what I mean? Like she 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 likes the safe traditional path. And um because of that, yeah, risk is like her worst nightmare. Like anything mm. risky, like she like she won't cross the road unless it's in the zebra crossing. Like mm. it's like <laughs> that level, you know what I mean? And if I cross the road not by a zebra crossing, Toby, 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 like, you know. But yeah, it's fascinating because like that's the reason like my mentors my hair showed me, um, like link it all back from my childhood and he's like I was like, that's the reason I am so like I love risk because mm. my mum was so anti risk, so I want to do everything I could to rebel against what she wanted me to do mm. uh, which is fascinating because you would never link that up at the time you know you no. never process that as no an eight-year-old you know so it's really only in hindsight you can say yeah i was i was a rebel yeah, well i don't know it was just a strange thing where i, I, I it, connecting it all now it makes sense my parents wanted the best life for me possible they wanted to, to like have safe jobs secure jobs they worked on the council mum primary school teacher so that they would never lose their job would always have a roof over our head and so like they always had these big ambitions of doing these cool things that always talked about it but i always linked it back then as like oh you're doing a boring job why mm. quit your job mm. go do something cool you know and so like that's why i guess i've gone down this path of very much wanting to do the opposite to my parents but I, it, it all stemmed from my granddad though um the sense of he is me but older except all the startups have failed so he's had like 30 plus businesses now and not a single one has made it big <laughs> He, he, he like literally, I was I went to see in England the other day, and um, he like as I was leaving, he's like, I've got another idea. I was like, Granddad, you're 84. What do you mean you have another another idea? Um, so I guess that's kind of like the summary of like my childhood and why I am the way I am. What about your dad? Well, dad's like one of those characters who you know when you're riding like you know you're catching the bus to work or the ferry or something. It's like silent. Mm. My dad's the dude who will just go to someone next to him, 
good weather, eh? What are you reading? And it's like, <laughs> it's just like, why are you like that? And it's, it's so interesting because like, growing up, I was always like, Dad, you're embarrassing me. Stop that, stop that. But it's such an incredible skill because like, he can make anyone in the room feel comfortable. And then what happens as soon as he starts that conversation with someone on the ferry, everyone starts talking to each other because he breaks that silence barrier. Mm. So he's that guy. Like, he's the dude who will like somehow get everyone in the room to all become friends and start talking to each other. But he's a very funny man. He's like... Always has these ideas, but never executes on any of them. And I'm always mm. like, Dad, go do them. He's always like, I want to buy this boat with all the people in Devonport. We're all going to chip in. We're going to sail it all around New Zealand. I'm like, great. It's been 12 years. There's no boat. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, he's, he's, he's a very funny man. I mean, it sounds like he's also got a really deep sense of curiosity about him. He does. He is one of those people who will just ask questions about everything. Yeah. Um, and he loves history. He's one of those people who knows any fact but normally you have to cross-check them because some of them are just completely wrong. But any fact about anything... He's iteration one of ChatGPT. Yeah, literally. Like, he, he, he was the human version. They've probably tested it on him. Yeah. <laughs> and so I guess what would you say like you align with them on? Like, It, it sounds like there's actually more similarities than I first thought mm. because you definitely have that sense of curiosity. Yeah. Uh, but the anti-risk versus risk equation is clearly where you, yeah, it's you stand a- apart from them. It's an interesting one because like growing up, my mum's mum, she always wanted me to be an accountant. She's yeah. like, Toby, go get a normal safe job, an accountant, they earn lots of money. <laughs> I was like, 100 grand is a lot of money at the time, but okay, like, cool, whatever. And then my dad was like, nah, like, screw that, go do whatever the hell you want. And I think dad always, I guess, wanted to live the life that he always wished he should have lived through me because of yeah. how my granddad was. And granddad always wanted dad to be that successful entrepreneur. He wanted him to do what he could never pull off you know mm. and so like dad always supported me in everything i was doing just was like screw it do it do it oh, do it that. do it and uh mum was always the opposite she was like no 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 like go be an accountant mm. um me and numbers not a good combination so i don't know how an accountant would have worked um but so it's like <laughs> she saw something in you oh god no it's like, yeah basic facts that's all i could do nothing else outside of that like, i still can't read a clock like you know the analog clocks yeah because my mum and i was at primary school my mum was a primary school teacher and she was the only teacher at my school for my age group. And so I just skip a whole year because she wouldn't teach me. She refused to teach me because I'd always butt heads with her. And so I had to go from year zero to year two. And in year one, you learn to read the time. And so I've never learned to read an analog <laughs> clock. And in year six, all the easy maths questions is, what's the time on the clock? And I had to skip those. And so I failed every maths test. So I couldn't get the easy ones. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely maths is not a strong suit. It's not a strong suit, but you decided to start a little side hustle at eight. Yeah, well, I would always, yeah, I, the side hustle at eight was a funny one. That was just, I don't even, I don't even know what, I don't know why that happened. But like, when, yeah, when I was eight doing the, um, at the school fairs, um, if people are familiar with the, like, the Tom Bowlers, it's almost like a raffle in that sense where you had to like pick a random number out of this like bag kind of thing. And then if your number matches the prize, you win it. And on every row, they'd always put like a bottle of whiskey or a bottle of vodka or something. And that's worth like 40 bucks in New Zealand. And these tickets are like $2 each. Mm. And so if you buy all the numbers on the row, and if you got it before the end of the row, you'd make a profit because that bottle of spirits is worth more than all the tickets on the row. And so I would do this constantly at every single one. And I ended up winning like 10 bottles of spirits at the school fair. <laughs> and then my dad, I was, I was eight, I couldn't collect these bottles. So my dad had to come collect them off the person. And then I sold them to my parents, but they didn't drink spirits. And so then I ended up making like 400 bucks on that as like an eight-year-old, like some of these to my parents, found them at the bottom of the cupboard at 16 and then drank all of those at 16 and sold them to my mates. So when I was eight, I technically made like $1,000 from that, which is just crazy. Like, I don't know why. It's just strange things that I did. And what, why I'm trying to understand why you still haven't learned to read an analog clock. 
I just never had to, you know what I mean? Like, I have, I have my phone, it says the time. Like, like there's these two hands that go round and round. Like, one of my exes, actually, she brought me a watch. Yeah. I don't know how to break it to her, like, and read it. It was like a $300 watch, and I was like... This is the oh, worst this present. Is, this is so lovely, thank you so much. Yep, pull out my phone. <laughs> I'm pretty sure those are just for show anyway. Oh, yeah, they look nice. Yeah. Makes, yeah, it looks like, you know, yeah. Daniel Wellington, I love them. <laughs> and what was, um, what was school like? It was interesting. Like I, because you know how I said my mum wouldn't teach me, so I had to skip a whole year group. Yeah. I ended up being the youngest in every single one of my classes because I skipped a whole year of school. Mm. That was really strange because I found out later that I had like pretty severe dyslexia, but I had no idea about that at the time. Now so, the analog makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But imagine like a like a five, six, seven, eight, nine year old, you know, running through primary school and like being the youngest in the class by a year, not being able to read a literal watch. And having severe dyslexia and just not understanding why you yeah. couldn't do what everyone else could do. Mm. You know, like 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 trying to read, I couldn't like I just couldn't I couldn't process words, you know, like you'd sit there your reading time and I'd be reading comic books. I don't I couldn't read a book, like I had no idea what to do. And um, it was always strange, so I really gravitated towards like sports. I love sports. And like I would every sport under the sun, like touch, basketball, hockey, football, rugby, anything I could do, um, that wasn't education type studies um and i naturally became friends with everyone who also was i guess similar to me in that sense you know like a lot of my best friends they're all dyslexics we all found out later wow super interesting that Uh, is my best friends uh, all adhd dyslexics wow tell me more about how you found them and what clicked and well, we were always just a little bit odd like you know what i mean like we were the we were the crackheads at school you know like we were the ones who just just didn't make much sense we always we always loved our sport we had a lot of energy and um, yeah, we just kind of like didn't really give a shit what anyone else thought about us. We were just like doing our own thing. Yeah. So when did you find out that you had dyslexia? Really late, year twelve, so sixteen years old. Wow. Uh, like second to last year at high school. Yeah. Why do you think you found out so late? My parents didn't want me to have it. I think. Yeah. Like it was that whole idea where it's like I didn't want to. It's one of those weird things where I think, especially being a guy, you don't want to be vulnerable about these things. You always just like get smarter. Like yeah. Just learn it do it yeah. faster like and i think it was all my friends are getting diagnosed and like you're nine you're 10 you're 11 i was like shit like we all think the same way so given you found out that you had dyslexia at such a late age mm. what was the journey like in building confidence in yourself like wow i'm just really terrible at this one thing um, <laughs> and not being able to diagnose that yeah can you share a bit more about that journey yeah Is it's interesting because a- i i never I never thought I was really bad at it. You know, it was almost just like, what do I need to do to be like everyone else? It was, I don't know, it was this weird thing where I was like, before I knew I was dyslexic, mm. I just thought I was just missing what everyone, what everyone else saw. Mm. But I think it goes back to that point you asked about earlier. It's like when I skipped that year and I was the youngest in all my classes, I was the youngest in all my sports teams, the youngest in like, you know, athletics at high school when it's like based on your year group, mm. not on your age. And so I'd always be with the year below me. It was super interesting going through that because I was almost like, athletics was the only time one in every two years, I'll be the favorite because I'll be my own age group for once in my life. As I've been dyslexic, I was like with everyone older than me and I couldn't work out why I couldn't read a book. And it was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> but it was fascinating because I think that gave me more confidence in a really weird way. Yeah, it's like if I didn't have that, it's like I always had to find a way around doing something. I always had to do something in a different way to everyone else. For example, read an essay to write. Everyone else did it one way. I didn't do it that way. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, like yeah. I, would, I would do it, like I worked out, I could 
anti-dyslexia with time pressure, which is really interesting. Yeah. So the reason why I'm last minute doing everything is I can get more done an hour before something's due than a week before if I have a week to do it. Yeah. If I have a week to do it, I do it in an hour. It's the same quality in that hour to that week. Yeah. And that's how I count my dyslexia to be able, that means I work really slow, but I can work really fast. It's like diamonds under pressure. Yes. And so I learned to do that from a very young age. And so I think the dyslexia actually helped me to actually be a lot more confident and you tested your own ability a lot more at a young age yeah. and um it caused me to do all the shit outside the box you know at uni i mean at high school selling lollies um you know like buying selling iphones for <laughs> 10 years you know like doing anything under the sun to make money because school was just not worth your time mm. you know i was like why, why would i spend my time in something but i'm always gonna be worse than everyone else at it but mm. i didn't know why and i didn't see myself as being shit at but i was just like not very good you know mm. like yeah, it's, it's really weird to look back on because I, I wouldn't change any of it. I wouldn't have wanted to be diagnosed any earlier because it made me who I am. And it forced me to always leave my school books at home, you know, to bring the lolly bags to school. That wouldn't have happened if I'd known I was different or special or, you know. This so sounds like that friendship group was particularly special all in my like amplifying the strengths. Yeah, like all my friends are from eight years old. Yeah. Like we're best friends. They'll be the best friends at my best minute at my wedding if I get to that age I'm not dead yet um, <laughs> like I always say to my mum is like I'm going to be dead at 30 <laughs> stress I put my body under is I've got 7 years to live I want to try to do what the average person does by 90 in the next 7 years so I'm never going to waste a day you know mum I mean? doesn't like that she goes Toby no Toby no don't say that touch wood but yeah my friends are very 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 like, special and important to me because I guess we all needed each other more than we realised mm, that's special and I don't want to change gears too much, but we were just having lunch. Uh, we were having a conversation, which we can talk about soon, on the job description for uh, a launcher. <laughs> and you were sharing, I guess, a backstory of what you did as like iteration number one of a launcher. Can you share what that was? Yeah, so the Kiwis will know about um, Rhythm and Vines in New Zealand. All festivals have it, all concerts have it. It's that leaderboard, that mm. referral, referral program, which is brilliant. I've always thought that referral program leaderboard style should be applied to every industry like it can be applied to everything in my opinion and um when i was at halls in the first year um the referral program meant that whoever bought a ticket through your code you'd get like for every 10 people who bought a ticket through your code you get a free rnv one day pass or two day pass or three day pass and i was like holy shit i'm in first year at halls i bought a facebook group with over 300 people are all going to rnv this year let's get everyone to do it through my code. And so I posted in the group and then got all the other halls in Auckland to do it through my code. And um, then was battling it out on this leaderboard from with Auckland versus Wellington, someone else was doing it there. And um, yeah, ended up making like so much money through it because I would, <laughs> I would get the free tickets and I would then sell those to my mates for 20% less. Yeah. And so it was like a full circular economy pretty much <laughs> at that point. And I ended up selling over 300 and something tickets for RMB that year. I made these tickets, so like, $400 each. So think about how much money I made R&B. Mm. Like, in theory, I should have probably earned some more money than that, but I thought it was brilliant. I did the same thing with Skinny. Um, you know when you get credit for the phone? You, 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 uh, if you sign someone up through uh, your phone number, you get they get 20 bucks, you get 20 bucks. I went to the dairy and I bought like 30 SIM cards. I would sign them up <laughs> with each other because Skinny had this flaw in their, in their system where you could send unlimited credit to another phone number. So I would just constantly send it up and I got a year and a half of free phone bill from doing that it was mm. like using the same mindset from rhythm, you know like, like from the rhythm and vine leaderboard um and i always thought that'd be such a fascinating thing to apply to all industries you know mm. what i mean and the, i mean the, the reason why i raised that i think it's probably important to mention some context is that so you're 23 yep. and we have this idea of blackbird called life's work yeah and 
it can be intimidating to look down the barrel of what does life's work actually mean, especially when you're living till 30 years old. <laughs> Seven years. And so part of the reason why I mentioned that is because so many of these stories have, uh, when you look back in hindsight, you can see mm. all of the dots in the journey that led to this idea. And I think like this was pre-Easy Rent. This was first year at Hall, six months before I went through the problem of Easy Rent. Yeah. Okay, maybe that's a perfect time to share yeah are we allowed to call it easier now or does it be kiki, kiki yeah, yeah. Still technically this was the easier end era before it went through its kiki era i don't know what 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 weren't are we allowed to go <laughs> well i think what we should do is call it easy rent when it was easy rent. Yeah, okay we'll do that and then it's just like, because of some of the stories too that came with easy rent exactly um, it's like taylor's version and before taylor's version <laughs> <laughs> that's why i call it our kiki era because it's like taylor's taylor's era <laughs> So how did you discover the problem? Yeah, it was um, when I was at Halls in first year, I was 18 in Auckland, Overwalk Hall. So how it works is you stay in, you know, a university halls accommodation from March till November and you live on campus, but only for the first year. And in second year, everyone goes off to the private rental market to get their long-term lease. The issue is that students are the last person you want living in your rental and you've got to pick anything in the entire world to live there but students. Yeah. So this means that you get like the, the grunt, you know, the picking order you're right at the bottom so try to persuade landlords to take students in the first place incredibly difficult so what students have to do is they have to sign this lease in november december when they're not moving into these properties and living there actually till march the next year um and pay the whole rent the whole summer when they're not living there because how it works everyone at halls often lives in another part of the country they go home for the whole summer and so yeah between my friend group we were looking at it and they ended up wasting a hundred thousand dollars between 30 of them at 18 years old on rent over summer and it wasn't just about the money, it was like you, I watched my friends not come to R&B, not come to these festivals, not come hang out with all their friends. They couldn't afford it. They were mm. chained to their rent through the bloody lease they weren't living in in Auckland. And so um, I was just far too stubborn. Like, you know, I always said I want to get around things and find ways to get around that others wouldn't do. Yeah, I was like, I'll just try to solve this. Like, why not? Like, you know, like, let's, let's, let's solve this for me and my mates. So then that's when I messaged, when I messaged like 168 Airbnb landlords um, over the space the next month, trying to persuade them to let me live in their place with my friends. And then I uh, made this stupid model. The, the model was, it was, I worked for Airbnb of two years before that, clean toilets, managing the places, and went to this whole other mysterious market from like 16 to 18 years old. So I, my idea was, okay, let's take my Airbnb experience and apply it to this, where students live in the um, houses from March to November, and this is during the winter. So these Airbnbs, the ones I worked for, lost money in this period. Like they were literally losing money having it on Airbnb, like 40% occupancy rate. And then they'd make all their money in the summer. So I was like, brilliant. Let's have students live there for nine months and then have um, it on Airbnb in the summer to make the max amount of profits. And um, that's what I went out to do and pitched all these landlords. And then uh, one came back and said yes of the 168. And then I lived through that for nine months next year in Parnell um, in this Airbnb house on the hill, the nicest student flat. <laughs> I've ever seen probably from anyone I know or my friends like holy shit what is this and um, it worked like look we, we didn't pay rent over the summer mm. and uh, we had like technically a nine month rental so that's what I went to go offer to all my friends because we solved technically in my eyes would solve the pain point it was marvellous I thought I'd done it I cracked the, the you know the, the, the code but learned very quickly that was not, not the case <laughs> wait so what was the first person like and why were they different to the 168 oh they literally were desperate Yep. like they it was like i bombarded them like in the sense of i'm a very persistent person mm. and as soon as it reply to me i'm like in your dms every mm. day until you reply to me. <laughs> um and so this person just got fed up and said fine like we'll meet and then um i persuaded her daughter actually to let's do it 
So I met her daughter and then her daughter was going back to China and they were giving up the house. And so she was like, yeah, screw it. You guys just have it. We'll test this. If this works, then we'll do it with all our other properties we have. Um, so like five of the properties on Airbnb. I was like, yes, yeah. this is brilliant. You know, <laughs> we've cracked it. And yeah, that's why they took the punt on us. And at this point, just for some context, what the business actually did. So stupid. <laughs> so it just doesn't work. Like, it's like literally the startup central program would have hated me. The business benefited most of the students, right? On the marketplace, the students got the most value, right? But landlords are the one who are paying us a fee. Mm. If you're trying to monetize the side of your marketplace who doesn't get the most value, mm. what the hell are you doing? Mm. That makes no sense. And so fundamentally what the business was, it was that I promised landlords I would increase your uh, profits by 30% compared to having it on Airbnb all year round. And um, that didn't become true, but that was my, that was my pitch. Um, <laughs> and then um, students would then have an ability to not pay rent over the summer by only living in it for nine months. And also you don't have to bring all your furniture, it's fully furnished, all good. What happened is straight after that marvelous idea I thought I had that worked was COVID. And so COVID completely and utterly fucked it. How did it fuck it? You mentioned before that it was like a two year long failure journey to share some stories. Yeah, so that was, had the idea at the end of 2018, and this is the start of March 2020, when the world goes into like pandemic mode yeah. and uh, everyone's like the whole Airbnb market just gets shut down. And so I was like, perfect. This is even more like landlords are looking to have consistent income. You can put students in there. What I didn't learn was that all these landlords at the time, they were just selling their, like they were just getting rid of their Airbnbs. Like people were just selling all their properties. Like the whole, mar- the whole world was in turmoil. Mm. And at that point I should have gone, okay, great. Lot of, lots change. Let's go and get more customer feedback or user feedback and talk to landlords and students. Did I talk to a single landlord or student between when COVID hit, when we launched in September? No, not a single one. I was a secret. I don't want to tell anyone my idea. I thought I was a genius. Number one rule in startups is don't keep your idea to yourself. It's all about execution, nothing about the idea. We keep getting messages about how great our idea is. Millions of people have tried our idea before and it hasn't worked in the new model we're doing now. And yeah, that's why I learned my biggest lesson of just talk to your users every single day. I don't care if you're an IPO company or starting tomorrow. Like, yeah, and so we completely fucked it. If we built something no one wanted. <laughs> So you launched in September. Just spent literally, imagine a year and a half of keeping a secret, yeah. what you're building to everyone you know. <laughs> and I dropped my entire life savings on it, like 15 grand into this thing, outsourcing the bloody tip to some old man up my road who built me a WordPress site. <laughs> took him six months. And our engineer, Alex, literally just for fun, like rebuilt it in like eight minutes just to be like, ha ha, kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah, launched it in September, 2020. It's like a big deal. I was like, oh my God, this is how it goes. You launch it, then it blows up. No one used it. Uh, another month went by, no one used it. Another two months went by, no one was using it. One of my really good mates now, Amber, was actually the first person that signed up on it. She, she, she signed up. I'm vividly being like, oh, someone has signed up. It's working. This is just signing up, not even using the bloody thing. And um, it was just the worst product you could possibly imagine. And um, yeah, fast forward six months over summer, no one would use it. I was running around door knocking to every landlord, going to every building, trying to persuade them to use this. They're like, Toby, we don't want this. And um, none of my friends would use it over summer. Like my literal friends I built it for <laughs> were like, we don't want this. Because I was trying to give them a nine month lease when what happened is there would always be one person in the flat that would stay there over the summer. So like, what, you want me to lose a friend to use your product because I can't live with them anymore. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And still at that point, I just wasn't listening. I wasn't listening to all the feedback I was getting transparently from people. And people were also being way too nice to me. Mm. And um, that's when 2021, it all shifted. Hit rock bottom. 
mum was like, get a real job, Toby. And I was like, go away, mum. Go be an accountant. She wanted to be an accountant. She literally said, what if I was living in my parents' garden? I moved home to save money. So I put all the money into the company, living in a cabin in our garden. And she was like, Toby, what the hell are you doing? She's like, like, you had more money when you were 15 than you do now. And I was like, yeah, it's not good, mum. Like, yeah. And um, yeah, that's when, start 2021, um, I had a really big reflection after meeting Mahesh, um, where it was actually like, word for word, what the fuck are you doing? Um, and that's what it will change. You should clarify, uh, is he still at Canva? No, so Mahesh was at Canva for a couple of years as an executive, first 20, the head of like people and something. Yeah. Um, but pretty much the only person I've ever spoken to with actual startup experience. This is crazy, first time in my life, met someone who'd <laughs> been there and done it, you know. And you told him the secret and he said... And he literally said, what on earth are you doing? He said, has anyone <laughs> used this? And I was like, a couple people, they were like, why? And they're like, oh, I just annoyed the hell out of them. Yeah. I was like, I was, Mahesh was like, have they used it again? I was like, no. I was like, he's like, okay, it's just like, you need to stop this. Um, and he's like, he's like, well, you have two options. You can either keep going with this and run yourself to the ground and no one will ever use it. Or you can delete everything you've done, all the code, like, and just start again and just go talk to these people with this problem. It's clearly a problem. I'm not arguing with you there's a problem, but your solution is not made for their problem. Mm. Um, go understand their problem. And this is the reason now it's so ingrained into me. You can never, ever stop learning the problem. Like today, I've been talking with itchy users in New York about the pain they're going through right now, every single day. And in the past, I wouldn't, I'd spend six months building and not talking to users. Mm. Uh, so it was the best thing that could have ever happen to me. It's built into our culture now, where I would say we're probably one of the closest companies with our users around. Like, we, we can't really get closer. Like, you know, like, it's, it's another level. I've been invited to multiple of our users' weddings. Like, it's like that level of closeness, you know. Back that claim up, give me some examples of... So, for example, even back when it was the easy rent days before, when we, when we pivoted Met Mahesh, started from scratch, I posted our story at the time, we had 200 followers on Instagram, um, and I was like, no one has any idea what the fuck we do. Please meet me for a coffee, I'll buy you a coffee. Just, I just wanna hear about how you live your life as a student. Just talk to me about your life and how you live. And I just wanted to hear stories. I'm gonna ask about a problem. The number one thing you do is, if you ask someone what the problem is, they'll tell you all about all these problems, and they don't actually want lots of those problems fixed. If you listen to a story, it's your job to work out what problem is the actual main thing they care about and then mm. you there pull that problem and go poke at that you know you don't ask them to give you the problem to fix and so yeah did that and met up with like 30 students in the space of a week just for coffees and just listened for fucking once didn't talk and yeah then from there started from scratch all over again and then we applied that mindset the whole way through like in sydney we literally go for gym classes with our users you know like go play tennis with potential users you know like literally call them up and talk through breakups with them like anything it possibly took just to understand them how they lived their life and what they were doing and like if you understand someone so well you understand the problem that they're facing because you know why they do things you know why they're not posting on their story renting out their place because they think in this way they have this insecurity you wouldn't know that unless you knew them and so yeah we just got so so close to our users where like you walk down the street they all come running up to give you a hug it's a friendship it's not like a business you know mm. and that's what's so important what was the version of We'll go with Kiki in Sydney. When you first launched in Sydney, like uh, you've now gone, okay, now I've learned about all of these problems. Yeah. And uh, what were the insights that you arrived with? Well, it was super interesting because what a lot of people don't know is that Easy Rent at the time, becoming Kiki, didn't work in Sydney at the start. It failed a fucking gen. 
I couldn't believe it. I was like, <laughs> again? Three years in, I don't know if I can take this anymore. I was like the valley of death, just drowning in it. <laughs> and um, we, so we, 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 at the end of 2021, we had just proven it. We filled like 69 rooms in total just for students over the summer. Nothing else. Average age of our user was like 21. And we had this uh, insight that was not really proven at all um, that we'd go to Sydney and there'd be 23-year-olds, 24-year-olds, young professionals who had just had a unit and they're living in Sydney somewhere and they'd go home to New Zealand once a year and they'd rent out their place to it with us. That's what we thought, uh, all year round. We'd never proven an all year round model before. So we walked up to Sydney on the 9th of February and we literally were like, <laughs> remember we were to go off the plane and we were like, now what? What do we do? <laughs> we didn't have a plan. Like me and Jack had no idea. And what happened very quickly is we were trying to, Mahesh, again, um, a huge pivotal moment, we were trying to boil the whole ocean. We were running around Sydney going, how can we get people to use this? And we weren't going after a niche, we are going after a specific person, and we were just going to everyone. And so because of that, Mahesh was like, stop trying to boil the whole ocean, find one rock pool, boil the hell out of that rock pool, and make everyone in that rock pool jump out, and be like, oh my god, this is amazing, and jump into all the other rock pools, and build an ocean of rock pools, like clusters. And I was like, that's fascinating. And that's why we ended up, rather than pivoting from the whole of Sydney, just to Bondi. Bondi only, which seemed crazy at the time, it's like, why limit? how many people you could have. And the crazy thing was that we'd learned this in New Zealand. In Wellington, all our success, there's 69 rooms, literally 80% of them came from like a couple of friend groups in Wellington that lived within four kilometers of each other and all were friend groups. Why did I not use that mindset and that insight to mm. apply that to Sydney? Huge fuck up my side. When Mahesh clicked that in my brain again, I was like, oh yeah, stupid coding. <laughs> um, and then we applied that to Sydney and then we did just Irish in Bondi. And the reason we did Irish, a lot of people also don't know this, it was the biggest Facebook group at the time for one nationality, Irish around Sydney. Because Irish around Sydney is used by the Brits. Everyone, everyone uses it. Yeah, so then it didn't work. We only filled our first place three weeks in. Like we, just, we did everything to try and make it work. We set up t uh, Fuck the Tinder Swindler posters all over Bondi. Everyone woke up one night to 150 posters where there was a rumor that he was on the dating apps. Remember the Tinder Swindler Netflix? Oh, yeah, 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 did yeah. you do that? Yeah, do you remember seeing that? Do you remember <laughs> that was us? We did that. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, so this was us three days after we arrived in Sydney, <laughs> and we went to surprise the whole of Bondi. So there was rumours he was here. So we put a thousand dollar reward if you find the Tinder swindler and get a photo of him. And um, obviously he wasn't here; it was just a rumour. It was yeah. a double bay, whatever that shitty paper thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then we tried that. Everyone was like, "What the fuck is Easy Rent?" But still, no one used us because like we weren't actually going after a niche specific person. So then we also infiltrated um, Milk Run. Sorry, Danny. Uh, we paid off drivers to put envelopes of easy rent in their bags same yeah. gift from milk run like scan here to get a free milk run order and if you list up your place with us while you're away back in new zealand and it didn't work not a single person used it me and jack set up all night a thousand envelopes handwritten personalized and not a single person ended up listing their place through us so it wasn't working like we were literally like working out what's the minimum we can spend on food per week to survive of 200k we'd raise pre-seed i was going to the the reduced declare section and buying the cheapest possible chicken that was in clearance it was like that level of like you know that this might not work and then it wasn't till in april we made it friend unlock uh we called it only friends at the time and that came from us sitting there and doing the maths if we fill 10 places a month for the next x amount of months we don't even hit ten thousand within like five years or something <laughs> and we were like that's depressing that's our goal by like the end of the year like what we're meant to do and so we're like screw it this whole idea was that people weren't using us because there was no reason they would use us over a Facebook group or the Instagram story. 
how can we make the feeling that everyone they know is using us and the product is built for them and them only? And it's this whole idea where you flip the equation from you begging them to use it to they are begging you to get into what you're using. And so what we did there was we made it friend unlock. We had this approach on Facebook where we'd pay people to comment on people's posts in Bondi Loop, saying, hey, go away for a month, do you want to rent my place, blah, 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 blah. And then someone would comment, try easy rent. Then this person would then go to our website, see that you had to be unlocked by a friend, and then go back to that person who's messaged them or commented and go, hey, I know when you just met, is there any chance you're going to unlock me to use easy rent? I saw you to be unlocked by a friend. I promise I won't fuck up. Please, like, can you let me use it? And that was how we man-made our first network that was real. And they perceived it as this thing that everyone was using. Um, it's an exclusive thing to get into. Um, and it was like made for them and like just them. And so that was like the very first time that we'd really kind of seen it start to work. And you can see it on our listing graph. It was like literally like this. And we introduced only friends, I think it was the 6th of April. Um, and then two weeks later, the delay listings, poof, poof, <laughs> poof, the entire way. We ended up literally like we were, I think we were growing something like 400% week on week. And like a period here of like two months. Like it was just outrageous. Um, and it all came from every time someone would um, list with us, they'd unlock a friend. On average, the person would unlock four friends to come like use our platform as well. People were messaging us, begging to get on because they have a friend's code going, I'll, I'll take you out for dinner. I'll order you a milk run order. I'll do whatever you want. You know, like people were offering us massages. Like wow. it was crazy. It went from no wanting to use what we were using to everyone begging to use it because it was this exclusive club that you had to get onto. And then it's seen as that the quality on it would be really high. So yeah, it was just a fascinating experience. We learned it all firsthand. Um, and that's where the whole easy rents invite only approach came from at the time. Literally that, was sitting around a table, going, let's just try it because nothing else is working. There are so many roads to travel here, but before we go more into the go-to-market playbook, three years in, it's not working, you've landed in Sydney. <laughs> I'm just curious, what is, what's that ticker inside you that's giving you energy that there's something here? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I just think I'm a little bit fucked in the head in the sense of like, <laughs> I just refuse to give up. Like, I don't know why. It's just ingrained into me. I can't, I wouldn't ever be able to sleep at night if I stopped. Mm. Like, that's why it was so hard the first time when Mahesh was like, drop what you're doing and pivot. That was so hard for me. It was the first time I'd given up at something. And I thank God I did, because I didn't give up, I just changed path. But like, I just, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't make it work. And Jack, my co-founder, is just so hungry. Like we just both just will try anything to make it work. There's, there's no such thing as a no. It's have we tried it this way, what could we do? And so for us, it was just like, we'll figure it out. There has to be a way. You know, it's one of our like values in Kiki is there's always a way. I love that value. So you're growing up like 400% month on month. It's actually insane, yeah. What did you learn about getting this product in the hands of customers and getting through that cold start problem that all marketplaces face and any sort of insights you can share on there would, would be awesome to hear about. Yeah, we got as close, this is when we realized let's get as close as possible to our users. Um, it's not about having a couple hundred people using us, it's about having like 10 who would die for us. You know, the Paul Graham, 100 people that love you over a thousand that like you. Yeah, we like, I would say we're one of the top people in doing the unscalable, you know, um, doing things that don't scale. So it was in April that we went and worked out, okay, there's this friend group formula that we were starting to see unravel where we would grab these people from Facebook. We, we built it now called the 25 best friend model, which we're literally using to launch in New York, where we found that we grabbed 25 people on Facebook who would post in Bondi Loop or Irish around Sydney. And they would be going on a wedding or back home to see family. And on average, there'd always be four other of their friends who haven't posted in this group. 
they're too scared to trust a stranger in their home. These are the this person posting the group isn't actually who we want. They're the person who's taken the trust hit, but fuck it, I'll just have a stranger. And so what happens if you can befriend them, get them absolutely loving you, they will then on average go and bring four other people who are also going on that trip into Easy Rent and unlock them to use it. So for example, you'd be on a Saturday, having a girls boozy brunch, and um, you know, Rebecca might go, huh, I'm going to Janine, Sarah, and Emily's wedding this year. And all the other girls are like, what the hell? How are you doing that? I can only, I can only afford to go to Emily's. And they're like, well, like, I'm, I'm unlocked from my rent like through, through, through Easy Rent. They're like, well, it's Easy Rent. And then from there, she's like, oh, well, if you buy me a margarita, like, I'll let you use it kind of thing. Like, like, I'll unlock you. And we're like, we just had to get that person being so passionate about what we did and raving about it and preaching it. And then they would bring in four people. And we befriended the hell out of these people. These are the ones we went to gym classes with, went to brunches with, to whatever it took, you know, walked the dogs for them. Like, didn't like, we, I remember there was one person didn't have an iron in their place. And so I went and like delivered an iron to the person staying in their place just so they'd have like an incredible experience. I treated them like royalty, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, they're so unscalable, you can never do that at scale. And we've built this 25 best friend model where all we need in a neighborhood is to create 25 best friends, which is the launcher's job. And then from that, we get 100 friends. Average person is four friends. 100 friends is the equilibrium that will start self-sustaining spreading through that neighborhood without us pushing it. And so that's our model now to go launch through New York. It's 100 friends per neighborhood, and then we can expand every time. Mm. So we give ourselves like four to six weeks in every neighborhood, and then go launch next one, launch next one, launch next one. Love that. And just describe the ultimate experience end to end. What were they raving about? It was fascinating. We did this. So Chloe, who we ended up hiring, joined our team last year. We gave her the most unbelievable experience possible. Brian Chesky talks about that 11 out of 10 experience. What can you do to just make them like, 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 like they'll die inside of how good it was. You know what I mean? And so with Chloe, what happened was one of our first easy renters, Jennifer, she um, listed her place with us. She was in the first like 20 or 30, I think it was a 28. And she went back for a wedding back home, right? Back to Ireland. At her wedding, Chloe and Ruth, twins, were there at the wedding and they were talking about moving to Sydney. And Jennifer was like, oh, I'm renting out my place with Easy Rent at the time. You should look to try find somewhere to live through them. So she brought in Chloe um, and Ruth into the product. So Looker and Lister crossing over. And then so when, when they were looking to move to Sydney, they then reached out to us. And then we ended up putting Chloe and uh, Ruth into this sublet in Bondi as Zoe Markle's place. And then from there, when they got off the plane, we were like, let's just meet them straight away. So they got off the plane, they'd been in Sydney for like 12 hours, and they were like, we know no one here. Like there was no one in Sydney that they knew apart from that friend Jennifer who was back home in um, Ireland at the time. And so they came to the office, we took them out for lunch, and then we took them out for like a huge night the next night out with like all these people. And as a result, we ended up introducing, I think, 15 people to each other that night. And um, they're all best friends now. Everyone who met on that night is one big friend group in Sydney. <laughs> and we literally created their dream experience because they moved to a new city. They knew no one, didn't know anything. We've sorted out their accommodations, sorted out their bullshit housing side but it's not about the housing we gave them a community and a friend group in Sydney mm. and um, like, and then what happened is Chloe was so blown away with that experience she wanted to join the team like it was that level of holy <laughs> shit I've experienced how painful this was trying to find a sublet not knowing anyone and you guys completely transformed that for me and like we were not able to replicate that for hundreds of people but a couple and it was just surreal watching it and Chloe to the day I was with her this morning she was still like, yeah, like I owe everything to that. You know what I mean? So yeah. 100%. And so 100 people, it becomes self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about that self-sustaining model that, I, I guess, how did you know it was self-sustaining? What were you looking at to give you the confidence that this model was working? When you don't spend a dollar on marketing. 
not a single penny. We have a rule in our uh, like in Kiki zero dollar marketing. If you have to pay for it, someone else has done it. Mm. If you don't have to pay for it, someone might not have done it. You know, mm. like you use to your advantage being small. Take mm. the scrappy to another level. For example, our go-to advertising is a cardboard or whiteboard. That's literally a bent whiteboard and a cardboard. <laughs> and um, that performs better than anything else. And so for us, it was like, this is spreading like crazy with zero dollars marketing in it. Every single person is bringing someone else into the product. And this is just in one suburb right now. One. Mm. You know, so you can look at that and start applying, holy shit, imagine if this was everywhere with that same kind of model. And it was super interesting as well because when we were operating in Bondi, it very quickly started spreading to um, Kuji. And it was fascinating watching that because you would actually watch the like unlocks almost where it was like you'd unlock one person and then you could instantly see the spread it was like a virus on top of them where they'd unlock everyone else around them and it was literally like watching coronavirus or something like that <laughs> where you'd see like it almost like, like it would be like easy rent enters could you and then like that like, oh my god do you see that like and, you know and so we were like oh this is spreading like fucking crazy and so then that for us is when it was like okay we need to scale this now mm. this is running without us it doesn't need us anymore and so what was the business model were there any sort of key learnings when you launched in Sydney from what it is now? Yeah, so we, a lot of people also don't know this, but our average age of our users is 30 years old. So it went from 21 in New Zealand, thinking it'd be 23 when we came to Sydney, average age now 30 year old. And um, we've been, yeah, very specific on that. We literally made an entire persona about who we're going after. Someone exactly age 30, earns 140K income, works in this industry and is in this friend group, goes to this place for like, like, like literally like this hairdresser to get their hair done, this cafe three times a week, catches this route to work. Like it was like such a specific <laughs> persona. Like we, we pretty much like stalked our user base. And that's, that's like we knew where they were going to be. We knew what they were going to be doing and we knew what they did. Um, it got to the point where I could guarantee if I got on the bus, I would, get, I would know who would be on that bus and I'd probably know what they're doing. It's like that level. Mm. Um, and so we learned an incredibly unique way, I guess, of building a product for one user. And we've applied that to New York in the sense of we're just going after Aussies, 30 years old, in New York, in one neighborhood. Um, and we'll work out their running club, we'll work out their cafe, work out their restaurant, work out their friend group, like all of that. Um, and so one on the business model, so the pricing structure, mm-hmm. I imagine you guys take a clip. 10%. 10%. Yeah. And they are... Uh, are they covering rent? Are they paying a bit more than mm. what they pay? Uh, how does the psychology work? Yeah, it's super interesting. I, I say a lot of people that like, we're the first actual circular economy where when the circular economy all came out, everyone just took advantage of it. You know, it became very commercial. Um, the beautiful thing about Kiki is that people just charge the amount they're losing. You know, they're not trying to make a profit. All they want to do is get back the $5,000 they're losing and be able to help someone else out who is in the same situation as them six years ago or five years ago and moving to that city for the first time. So it becomes like a very much a social thing. You feel like you're doing a good deed and earning back um, mm-hmm. all the money you're going to lose being unchained from your rent. And so the, the really cool thing is that we're building a business where we're not charging anyone any money. We're giving them money. We're giving them back the money they were losing. You know? And so they're, they're like, oh my God, I was losing five grand. Now I'm gaining 4,500. <laughs> they're like, thank you. You're like amazing that you could charge me 20, 30%. It was already lost money. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about what we're doing is that for everyone this is a sunk cost. But when you unchain them from their rent, they'll start going away not once, but two or three times a year. So it's this, this incredible thing that happened that we learned in Sydney where it's like not about the money, it's about what the money can unlock for people. Zooming back up to the top of the funnel, now that you're launching in New York, how are you getting creative around your go-to-market tactics? Yeah, well, it's something that we 
looked at doing in Sydney and we didn't end up doing it. We're experimenting with it in New York where we're taking that friend unlock code we talked about and applying that to entire neighborhoods. So in the sense of we'll be launching, say, just Williamsburg or just East Village for that first four weeks and then at that point, it's like, okay, we're going to launch a new neighborhood in two weeks. Whoever has the most neighborhood unlock codes, that's all we'll go next. So for example, say you're going away and you live in Chelsea, you have to get all your friends in that neighborhood to all like use your code or their code, or exactly how we're going to do the codes yet, to unlock that neighborhood. And then if your neighborhood has the most unlock codes at that two-week mark, we'll unlock your neighborhood. But if, say, you, you're second or third, you can't use us. You're not allowed to. If another neighborhood's number one, then those people can. So what our mindset was there, it's taking the one-on-one friend unlock and almost how do you start it before the cold start in that neighborhood? How do you build up all the hype and the wait list almost to use it through them, not even through you doing it? And so that's our way of validating where we can expand next because there's already the demand there, people are desperate to use it. And that whole FOMO side, you really want something, but you can't have it. Mm. Humans are just strange people, you know, and if you can have something and it's easy, you're like, oh, whatever, you know, but if you're desperate to get into something, you value it so much more. So yeah. What else? The York is a super interesting one because we've learned that, so applying the Bondi method in the sense of everyone asks always, Bondi, New York, that must be so different. Like, how are you going to do it in New York? You only do New Zealand and Bondi. And um, Bondi and New York are incredibly similar. The reason they're incredibly similar is that 80% of New York aren't from New York. 20%, only 20% are the ones who were born there are New York locals. 40% are foreigners that weren't born in America, and 40% are Americans who weren't born in New York. So you've got 80% of the population who don't belong there and literally feel like so out of place. And so what we're doing is we're building in a very, very culty way there. Where, for example, we're opening up our own office space and we're allowing our users to come co-work from that for free. And they can bring their friends into it as well. Because everyone in New York we found from being there for, on the ground for the last three months, us included, are like searching for this like, like belonging, searching to be a part of something. The reason you see in New York, like wait lists and guest lists for clubs are such a big deal there. Run clubs are so culty. Everyone's a part of something. And everyone's searching to be a part of something. And our go-to-market is we become that something for people. We become that collective for them, uh, of people who are like them. Um, and so we see our office space, it's becoming our co-working space, becoming a cult. Like, I'll be so pissed off if it's not. Like, <laughs> culty, culty. Um, and so that's why one of our go-to-markets where we've never, I've never seen someone build next to their users with their users every single day. Yeah, I mean, you're certainly redefining what it means to be close to your customer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like there's no, you can't get closer. That's our kind of mindset. Have you lived with any of your customers yet? Uh, heaps. I've lived in. <laughs> I've lived in 18. At the time, it was 18 Easy Rents in Sydney um, over like a year and a bit. And I've lived in five sublets in New York. Although I guess they'll be Kiki soon. And oh, it is insane what you learn being that close to your users. For example, I didn't realize that spare rooms would become such a big thing on our platform. I always thought it'd be people's actual bedrooms they sleep in. But mm. the same trust is also needed for their spare room in their house. They don't want to live with a weirdo. Airbnb started with this, but no one uses Airbnb. I actually lived in more spare bedrooms than I did in people's actual bedrooms that they were sleeping in. But it was because I needed more of a flexible time schedule. But yeah, when you're just living with your users and hanging out with them every single day, it's just different. Like they literally go to work and they're like, the easier guy's living in my house. Like, like, like Elliot from Eucalyptus. I remember he um, put the whole Snap channel to, uh, to Eucalyptus. He's like, yeah, I've got the easier guy coming to live in my house. He's living with me. Like, it's, you know, and people message me still to this day. You were the guy that lived in Elliot's house. You know, the easier guy. And it's just different because like, you, you know, Slack doesn't come live in your house when you're using the product. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and there's all that shit you can't do at scale. 
but it's incredible to do in the early days and you learn the problem like the back of your hands. Like for example, I fucking hate cleaning, like it sucks. I think there's gonna be a billion dollar cleaning company built within our company. If someone else wants to go do that, we'll absolutely acquire you. Um, <laughs> I would love you to go do it. Right, it's gonna be a pain for us to do. And uh, I, yeah, we learned from that, it's like we need to have an option for you to get a cleaner to come in if you don't wanna clean. Because uh, the whole thing on Kiki is that you have to leave it at the condition you found it. I just hate cleaning. And so we got Courtney, um, you'd pay a hundred bucks and then she would come and do the clean for you. You know, and I learned that from going through it myself. I would just be like, oh, cool, people can clean. You know, why not? Uh, so yeah. And <laughs> yeah, that is the, the devastating moment when the trip's coming up and you realize, oh no, I still have to clean. Uh-huh. So speaking of, you mentioned Airbnb. I think that'd be a good chance to call out one of the most common questions I know that you get. So what's the difference? Uh, why can't Airbnb do this? Yeah, it's got really, really simple to answer now. In the sense of <laughs> a lot, of, a lot of people asking me this. Even like you know, like the founding team at Airbnb asking you that. Then you have to be like, oh shit, okay, I got to answer this properly. It comes down to fundamentally, ninety percent of Airbnb's listings are commercial investment properties, right? So as a landlord, you don't want anything to do with the person staying in their home. All they want is tick box trust it's not their home. It's one of their 50 investment properties that has IKEA furniture in it and a random family from IKEA in a photo frame that they don't even know. Uh, And so these properties are just soulless. And because of that, all they need is like an email, photo verification, and like one review. They actually need to know who this person is and feel similar to the person staying in their home. When it's your personal home, it's your personal space, your bed, your kitchen, one of your most prized things, you don't want a weirdo staying. You don't want a stranger staying. And you want to know everything about who's staying in your place. It's your home. This is the reason people only put it on their Instagram story before we existed, offering it to friends and family to come stay in their home. And so what we found is that only one in 500 of our listings would also post on Airbnb. It's like 0.001%, like nothing. And that's because that on Airbnb, all you get if you put up your place on there is a name. You don't even get a photo of them. You just get a first name. How the hell am I meant to accept Jack <laughs> off just seeing a name of what he's, you know, like, 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 what he's gonna be like in my home or who he is or anything about him? And so that's when we built into our product. It's all about how similar you feel to the person staying. And as a result from our 1,504 matchings, the deviation of age between looker and lister, 11 months all I'm matching so people would accept people as similar to them so it'd be a whole thing was how can you go from a stranger to feeling like a friend of a friend as quick as possible um, this is all about say for example yourself Mason you, you know like you're putting up your place you're in Europe for a month we put someone through to stay in your home who's the same age as you similar interests similar everything similar nationality and you'll be like oh my god I see myself in them you can't get that Airbnb mm. you know and like we're like a whole nother level of like seeing a snippet into someone's life mm. uh, so like imagine Hinge and Instagram all stuffed together so go, go further on that. I'd love for you to share uh, more about that experience from the user side of things and, and how you sort of arrived at that dating aspect yeah. of the product. It was going back to the point earlier around get to know your users so well, talk to them every day. So we took that to a whole nother level. Like, Jesus Christ, it was... Jack would do the day shift, I would do the night shift. And what I mean by that is we didn't build a product, an actual tech product. We would use Instagram group chats to do every single match for over like 500 matchings at the time. Uh, and this meant that we had people in Ireland and England and people in Australia on different time zones. We'd be doing all the communication between them in these group chats, going back and forth. And we got to understand them like 
like like your grandma like it's like our whole saying is like you have to understand the users as well as your grandma where we just talk to them so much you understand exactly how they trusted someone so we did so many manual matchings that we realized that people didn't even want to speak to this person before they'd accept them to stay in their home it was actually they'd stalk their instagram work out what they were like what type of life did they live did we have any mutuals who did they know and so we went from there and we were like holy shit all people need to see is a snippet into their life the person has to be super similar to them and if they have a mutual then it's instant trust as long as they're similar to them as well. Like we had someone, uh, we had Anna actually decline her 19-year-old cousin to stay in her home to take an easier enter at the time because she felt more similar to them. Like, it's insane, you know. And so we were like, from that, we need to build a product that allows you to see a snippet into someone's life as quick as possible. And then also that mutual factor, which we were doing through Instagram. And so that's when we came across Hinge. Um, and then at the time, we were looking at, okay, how do we replicate what Hinge gives people where if we asked everyone, why do you use Hinge, not Bumble or Tinder? And they're like, Hinge is the easiest way for me to see if someone's going from a stranger to feeling like I know them. Mm. We're like, it's exactly what we need to do. So we just copied the whole UI. We didn't even bother changing a single thing. Um, I'm surprised we've been sued by now by Hinge, to be honest. Um, and yeah, it was crazy. We had a 95% acceptance rate from seeing that Hinge profile for the best fit we'd put through before they'd even spoken to the person. Mm. And the whole insight before, everyone thought they had to speak heaps and do video calls and all of that. We were this close to building a video calling platform. Um, and we didn't, we wanted to understand our users more. We found that people didn't want a video call. A video call isn't the same as having a snippet into someone's life. You know, you can't see what they're like in the weekends, what they do in their life, their hobbies, their interests from a video call. You just talk about the weather and shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. um, and so, yeah, it was fascinating to learn like how the late, because we pushed back building for so long and it's got to know our users, we got past almost all these roadblocks that other people have seen other platforms build video calling and it hasn't worked. People don't actually need that. They think they need that. Mm. Um, and so that's why we've come into the, our whole experience now as a matchmaking service. And you know, our, our algorithm allows you to be as fussy as you want with who you want to stay in your home um, because at the end of the day, it's your personal space. Mm. You have full right you know, to, to control that. There's an interesting triangle here, which is that I'd love to unpack with you, which you went from not speaking to any users, then you went to effectively living and breathing and becoming a user mm -hmm. and trying Following everything in the them. book. And the side note on that is you also observed that people were actually already doing this behavior mm. on Instagram stories. Mm. How were you avoiding, I guess, analysis paralysis? like? You can either get stuck speaking to too many customers. Yeah, yeah, not and, and you mentioned something earlier, which you said you ask them their journey and then you focus on the problem that resonates with you mm. and then you unpack that problem. Mm. And so I'm just curious about how you balanced the act of listening to your insights mm. versus listening to everything that they are saying. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because we had a beautiful thing happening where we got to have conversations with thousands of people in the space of a couple of months. Mm -hmm. So we were almost taking the most common behavior across all these people, not just individual use case, you know. Um, and so we weren't really building just for one person. It was for like all of these similarities across these people who are all very similar people. And so for that, that allowed us to almost take the most common problems and then build a product to solve that. Like going back to the thing about the Instagram stories, the fact that Instagram stories are our biggest competitor is one of the only reasons that back in the end of 2021, I thought this could be global. It was because I was like, people are solving it in the same way in Bangkok, in Thailand, like, 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 you know, like in America, in, in Vietnam, in New Zealand, in Australia, in New York, all in the same way mm. on the Instagram story. And so it was like, because that behavior was all happening in the exact same way, it doesn't matter what culture you're from, 
you still go into your friends and family, your village. That's what Instagram stories are. I think about it in this day and age as technology's village. You mm. go into your village to see who you trust wants to stay in your home. And so that's how we build our product, you know, based off that kind of mindset of taking all the behavior we're seeing and then we decide what to do when we see that insight. That, I mean, that's one of the commonalities with like all consumer grand slams mm. is that there is an existing user behavior that's happening and oftentimes ground swelling and then it's your job to become the center of gravity for that behavior. If you, your business, fundamentally, before you're trying to make people use it, is trying to change behavior. Okay. This is what I was doing in the first version of Easy Rent. I was trying to change human behavior yeah. to use my service. That's fucked. You don't even <laughs> want to do it. You have to build on top of something that's already happening. Um, so if you're not building on top of it, you're forcing them to do something that's not natural to them. Love that. You also mentioned getting sued by Hinge. What happens if I am part of the New York attorney district and <laughs> rock up with a cease and desist letter yeah well i think when you get sued by new york i'll be disappointed if it's not within two years I, like, <laughs> like, like, i'm at that point now if they don't sue us i'm gonna try to get a sued because like what happened is uh, in 2013 when airbnb got banned by the san francisco government their first city they were going to make airbnb illegal they got 300 of their hosts to march on the street back when airbnb was actually for everyday people to march in the street and persuade the government, hey, look, we need Airbnb to survive. This is our living, you know. And as a result, our San Francisco government reversed the decision and made Airbnb the first, the first legal city Airbnb was in the entire world, San Francisco. Mm. Um, and Brian has kept that relationship the whole way through, the founder of Airbnb. In New York, we get a cease and desist letter. The really interesting thing is, I think it's another motto around us, is everyone thinks we're a short-term rental company. A short-term rental company is like stays below 30 days, normally investment properties, and they just fuck the housing market in short. Um, because what a short-term rental is, is it used to be a long-term rental one day, but then the landlord has come in and got, I can make more money in the short-term rental market, kicked out the locals who were living there, made it a short-term rental, jacked up the prices, and caused a housing crisis because now there's less housing in the long-term rental market, therefore rents go up. And so what's happening is New York's going to go around and cease and desist every single company that's a short-term rental to try fix their housing market. They've already banned all stays below 30 days. Airbnb is, yeah, they're screwed. And what will happen is they've already given Airbnb a cease and desist. Well, it's pending right now. And then when we get our cease and desist, that's when the world's going to realize we're not a short-term rental company. So what we're going to do is we're going to take that cease and desist letter, put it on every single billboard, put it under every single door, and give it to all our users to march on the street down New York and show the world that we're good for the housing economy. Look, we literally use empty space that's already being empty. We're bringing money into the locals. We're relieving pressure off the freaking housing crisis, giving housing to people that didn't exist prior. Um, and I think that's when they'll realize also our average duration is over 30 days. We're not even technically a short-term rental company. You know, we're like a mid-term um, like subletting club. And um, if, if that doesn't happen, I'll be so angry because it's the best marketing we can ever get. You know, it's the, when the world truly realizes when they're in crisis, oh my God, we need this in our cities. It's not even about wanting it. This, we have, this is helping our situation. Um, and that's when I think that Paris, Amsterdam, all of these uh, cities will follow suit when um, these short-term rental companies get sued in New York. And then that's when we're going to go global because we'll be the, literally the solution to all these suings around all the cities. Mm. I think that's a pretty good answer. I love it. Mm. I will join you on the march. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the reason we're so close to our users. We need them to march in the street with us. It's like Shrek. Do you remember with the pitchfork like going down the street? That's oh, like, oh. an iconic scene. Yeah. So I, literally, I think of that every single time. I'm literally going to sleep at night. Please get a cease and desist. Please get a cease and desist. Oh, gosh. Okay, two years. No. So we'll get you back on Wild Hearts and that'll be... Yeah. We'll do it at the march. We can do it at the march. Yeah. Yeah, you'll be at the front of it. Oh. Oh. So... One of the things that I'm hearing is 
you're incredibly good with people. And I spoke to Sam and she is the, the lead relationship holder with you. And she mentioned that she believes you're one of the top 1% of humans in the world who understand human psychology. Mm, um, <laughs> and did she tell you that? No. Why do you think she said that? It's a funny one because it's always, it's always you only see it on reflecting rather than in the moment. And it wasn't really until Sydney that I really understood it. But my entire life has been building up to this, if that makes sense. So for example, growing up, because I was so dyslexic at fucking school, it sucked. Um, I had all the side hustles. So I, for example, was buying and selling iPhones where I would be the middleman where people would trust me, literally, to like because I had a reputation of buying and selling iPhones rather than going to trade me and buying an iPhone because I was that trusted <laughs> person in the middle. I sold yeah. over 4,000 iPhones over 10 years. I became very repetitive in that. And so I learned how people trusted. I learned how I, as a mutual, can literally earn money from being that trust in the middle, you know? Um, and like, you know, at school, I remember when we were, I was buying and selling lollies at 13 and I got the teachers to close down the other lolly sellers because I built up a relationship with the teachers because <laughs> I had the highest quality lollies and they would buy from me behind the scenes and no one else. And so I guess all my life, I was learning this kind of relationship building and people and understanding how people trusted and what made them, I guess, like, I don't know how to put it into words, but like, just understand them and, Connect. you know, and, and, and not, yeah, I don't, I don't really know how to put it into words there. Like I've never, I still haven't dug into it that much, but like because of that, I've been always been a very strong relationship builder. Like I've always been in relationships and sense of love life as well. Like from 16 years old to what was it, 21, I was in relationships for six years or six and a half years, you know. And so because of that, I've always very much been like a people person. Don't ask me about the weather. I'm not going to fucking talk to you about the weather. I want to know about your childhood. I want to know everything about you. You know, like I love getting close to people and connecting with people. And so because of that, you get to learn human psychology very quickly. You can read people's facial expressions. And when I was diagnosed with dyslexia, they put me in the, actually in the top 1% for um, oral speaking and human, human, human connection, which is interesting. I wow. didn't think about that either. Um, but they put me in the bottom 1% for writing. Um, and so, yeah, I think it all actually all stems from dyslexia, to be honest. Um, and that ability to, you're forced to connect with people because you can't do it in other ways. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Greatest strength is always on the other side of one of your greatest it is. I don't believe anyone can be amazing at everything you have yeah. to be absolutely fucking terrible at something to be incredible at something else yeah and you see that in all of the most incredible founders yeah and people yeah. Just I, I have so many flaws I'm the most chaotic person ever like without Jack <laughs> and Alex there's no way for two and a half years it didn't work because I needed them you know yeah. what I mean like they're my rocks you know it would be a leaky bucket otherwise I can bring it in but it all falls apart without it you know <laughs> you had an, an insight on people over property property over people can you share what that means yeah so the reason this problem we're solving has been around literally since the roman era so people in the roman era would go away missionaries and they would offer their place their little shack to people in the neighboring village to come stay as a social thing to look after their family and also to pay their rent for them while they're gone it was like bringing accepting someone into your life and what that is there is it's not about the property at all. Think about the Roman era. This is about a human connection piece, about looking after someone's family. You know, that's what it was at the time. And from doing this for the last five years, the first three years, I was entirely focused on money and property. It was look how much money you're losing. Like, we'll get you that money back, all about the property itself. Nothing about who's actually staying in your home. And when I flipped it and started realizing it's all about who's staying in your home, I was like, holy shit, it's nothing to do with property. It's a stupid name, Easy Rancher never existed. It sounds like a property <laughs> company. We're not a property company, we're a human psychology business. We're about turning someone from a stranger to feeling like a friend of a friend as quick as possible. And what happened is everyone who's tried this before, it's one of the oldest problems in the book. This problem has been around since the Roman era. Millions of people have tried to crack it. And they've all focused on property over people. 
and no one has cracked people over property. And um, it's fascinating. I was sitting there across the room in a board meeting with some of the biggest funds in America, and they were like, we've been pitched this so many times. We've never heard people over property. All we hear is property over people. And it makes so much sense in hindsight. And someone said to me, those are the best ideas. But it makes so much sense in hindsight. And so, yeah, everything we do is centric around people over property. Speaking with Hinges ex-CMO the other day, and um, Hinges, he created Hinges to be deleted slogan. Found out it's not a slogan. It's so interesting. It's ingrained into everything they do, into their engineering, their marketing, their how they hire, the executive team, everything. Um, and it's the philosophy they live by, live and breathe, to be deleted. You know, they track how many marriages happen from Hinge, not about how many users are on the site that day. You know what I mean? Like it's it's different. Mm. And so our people over property is everything. Like the top value we have on our values, we have all these ones like be an underdog, be a you know like ask for um, forgiveness, not permission. But the top one is be a good person. It's a people business. It's all about being there for people and people first. And so it's been fascinating to watch how that hasn't just become the way we match users on that side. It's what we live and breathe. Mm. You know, and you see us building online. I'm very, very open and transparent in the way we build, and I get a lot of trouble for that. But I do it because we're a people business, you know, and people need to see the real story and um, yeah, connect with us in that way. What does it mean to be a good person at Kiki? Yeah, it's interesting. Cause... Like I can, I can very easily draw a line between to be deleted and how this flourishes within yeah. inside the organization of like, yeah. you know, engineering, debt, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Being a good person is close to the classic corporate, we have integrity. Of course. Share a bit more about what that means and how it flourishes. So I think that means in the sense of, for us, go back to Sydney, right? We could probably be charging 30% right now, fees. We could probably be charging 40% if we wanted to. We could probably earn a lot more money from this very early on if, we, if that's what we valued in that moment in time. But the number one we thing that we value here is we genuinely want to change how the world lives. And it sounds so cliche, but we've seen, like we've literally had people run up to me in the street, cry in my arms because they got to see their grandma for the last time before she passed away because they were able to go back and see her not pay rent while they were gone. You know, when you have that happen to you, it's all about money. Like, it's like they, 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 they didn't pay rent while they were gone, sure, you saved them money, but it's about people. It's about the connection. It's what you unlock for people in their lives. And so a sense of, like, being a good person, it's that if we can pull this off, like, if we can do this, we're going to change how a billion people live and unchain a billion people from their rent. And, like, fundamentally, like, you're making people's lives happier. I think Jack's number one thing of why he's building this is he's like, holy shit, I can genuinely bring so much happiness to people's lives. And I think when that happens to you, when someone cries in your arms and you go, holy shit, imagine if we could replicate that feeling for a billion people. Like, that's incredible because it's not about money. It's not about anything else that comes from business. It's just about helping people. Mm. And if you want people who are going to come into this and think about it very capitalistic, how much money can we make? What's the max we can get out of people? you're not going to win in this space. Mm. This space is all about how much impact and value can you create for people, and that's how you change how the world lives. Mm. I love that. Far out. That is such an amazing story. It's almost hard to go on from there. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the design of the app, so when I think about going from stranger to friend of a friend, does that same idea live through in the way that you've thought about designing the product? Every single thing you see is intentional and when you start thinking about that you start to see it so for example when you're browsing we've got so many plans from since the evolution of the product that's now it's going to look anything like the product in six months and 12 months after that his experience when i run in new york but when you're browsing say when we're in sydney the first thing we push is the name of the person whose place it is person this is not this is not fucking bondi bubble <laughs> pad this is jenny's home 
you know, Ginny's actual home. And then you have a face of Ginny right then and there. The face literally one third the size of the listing, like big ass face. And you also put her flag nationality there. You put what nationality she is, because then you see people like you there, you're like, oh my God, this is made for me. And when you start looking at that, you see all these small things that we've done that pick up on that. For example, us doing Instagram rather than email. Why? Do you get to see someone's entire life through an email address? No. Through their Instagram handle, you can see everything about them. You know, and so that's why we do like everything about people in the actual product and flow. Mm. <laughs> that's so cool. And why now New York? Why do you think this is a really good time to start this business? I wish not start I, this business, but start it yeah, in New York. I, I wish we were born in New York um, mm. in the sense of we might not be here right now if, if, if we were, but New York is literally like in crisis. Like it, like it, it, could, it couldn't be worse, to be honest. You know, people are paying 2.5 times more rent on average than people in Sydney. You know, that's literally 3.8 times more than New Zealand. Mm. So you can see where we started and how the problem was so much worse in New York. And fundamentally, it's that there are more people living in New York who aren't from New York than anywhere else around the world. The only closer place is London. And if we're going to go to Europe, that's where we would have gone. You know, it was either the gateway into America or Europe. We chose America first and then do Europe later with New York. And so then building in New York, the reason we're focusing there is... If you look around the world, it's like housing crisis, one of the worst in the world. Rents, 68.5% someone's income goes to rent. That's insane. That so is think, it's like, it's like, like, disgusting. That's, that's like, it's stupid, you know what I mean? Like say you earn 200K, you're now earning like 40K. Like it's like, it's like, it's like terrible, you know what I mean? As you think about when these people are going away, they're literally spending like $5,000 on rent while they're overseas and say Europe for a month. Uh, so people are so much more aware of where every penny of their rent is going. And so you look around the world and it's like the pain point is so much stronger in New York than anywhere else. And because of that, I talked about earlier where 80% of New York aren't from there, these people are going home all the time and it's literally losing $5,000 once, twice a year. And so that's the reason we picked to go to New York first before we went to say Alabama. Alabama is a very different city to New York. It's not very dense and there's not many interconnectivity points. New York has one of the most, like the highest interconnectivity points of any city in the whole world. What this means is that we'll spread there incredibly quickly because there's more chance of a day that someone can hear about Kiki than in Alabama where everyone's just driving around in cars. Um, and so there's heaps of science behind the actual layout of the city in New York. And the reason we picked to go there, um, what's actually super interesting if you look at Copenhagen, the way it was designed, and we've applied a lot of those like mindsets and theories to how we launch a city and how we can guarantee that people will hear about us within like say a two mile radius at this cafe, at this bar within three weeks. So there's like a lot of science behind how we target people. So let's let's remove the variable of New York. Why is this just generally a good time to start this business? Yeah, well, like everyone's tried this before and this hasn't worked. And it's not just down to people over property. It's also down to this like new new age that we're living in in the sense of post-COVID, everyone was stuck in home for literally like two, three years in that sense, not able not able to go home and see family, so claustrophobic and, and like literally like chained to that, that house they were in. And so the new, the new world that we're living in, people are like antsy to go and do things, live their best life. Um, and so you take that combination of people wanting to go and live the best life they could possibly have with this huge anti-short-term rental movement that's dwelling right now around how people literally don't want to stay in Airbnbs, they don't want to fuck the local housing market. And so what's happening is you see all it all over TikTok in every comment section of someone being like, I just made $20,000 being a short-term <laughs> rental landlord on Airbnb. 
Everyone's like, what the fuck? You're, you're literally the problem. You're causing these housing crises in these cities. And you've seen all around the world, like Amsterdam, Melbourne just did it the other day. They're banning and putting crackdowns on short-term rentals because of how much they're fucking the housing market. And so for us, we're the solution to this. Like Airbnb and these short-term rentals have literally ripped the soul out of these communities and we're there to put it back in. I guess it wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago if the problem wasn't as bad. Um, as you take those combinations of these two things like brewing and the average person literally can't afford to buy a house anymore, so they're all renting. Rents are only going up. So you can see how all the trends in the world are pointing to this new way of living that needs to happen, this new era. And we want to be at the forefront of that. Obsessed. What's next? Yeah, we've, um, <laughs> we've always been one of those companies where everyone's gone, there's no fucking way that's going to happen. Uh, like the NZ Herald article with Chris, he was cracking up because he's like, when you went to Australia, you told me you were going to go and raise $3 million within 12 months after you launched Sydney. And I just laughed at you. And then he's like, you just went to raise 10. What? Like he's, he's like one of the first people who's actually gone and done what they wanted to do. And it kind of links back to everything in the sense of myself, Jack and Alex, we just have such a, like the world has to have this. Like we've failed if this is only for people in Sydney, only for people in New York, and only for people in say another place. The world has to be able to use this because for us, it's not really a mission that's just for ourselves anymore. It's about we have to change how the world lives because we know it's possible. And so the next stage is to go global. It's New York's the last piece of the puzzle. We want literally want to be on track with our 12 months goals. Within three months, then we can raise our Series A. We already have Series A investors lined up if we can pull this off in New York. And then from there, it's copy and paste on the whole of America, 10 denser cities, raise an absolutely mega Series A. And then 12 months later, then grow the team to 100 and expand over Europe, growing 20 cities in Europe over the next 12 months later. And so you can see the pathway there means we'll be operating in like 40 cities in the next like two, three years. Epic, man. Well... I can't wait for the next two to three years. <laughs> no, and at not. least within that time frame, I'll be, I'll be marching. Yeah, you'll be marching. We can guarantee we'll be marching, marching together. That's incredible. Thank you so much for joining me on Wild Hearts. Of course, and I appreciate it, Mason. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful. If you liked, subscribed, left a review, even share it with a friend. In case you want to keep in touch, share feedback or even a pitch deck, I'll leave my blink card in the show notes for you to get in touch. Thank you so much for listening once again, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Godspeed.